1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. For $5 a month, you can actually see the Thin Green Line interviews and other video content on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and feel like you're part of the conversation. Join us. Welcome everybody to the Thin Green Line. Wayne and I are very pleased to introduce our friend Ed Calderon on this episode. Ed started his career in Mexico and spent over a decade on counter-narcotics operations against the drug cartels before migrating to the north to educate and help protect our public on both sides of the border. Ed teaches survival preparedness, officer safety, personal safety from abduction, and is also an expert on cartel trends throughout the world. You've seen him on Joe Rogan, and now you're going to see him on the Thin Green Line. And check out this episode and hit us up with questions and comments after you've had a listen. First of all, I want to say thanks for reaching out. Thanks for supporting Hidden War because I had heard about you before, right before I went on Rogan, actually. When Hidden War dropped, I was in Missoula, Montana doing a book signing, and a radio announcer that was a Special Forces retired guy said, oh my gosh, man, have, have you heard of Ed Calderon? Have you seen him on Joe Rogan and the stuff he's talking about and the videos they're showing and hadn't really heard of him yet? show? I went, man, um, somehow, some way we got to connect. And it was like a day or so later, you reached out. And then, um, then I went on Rogan after you had gone on about three months and that kind of fueled the fire. And because that, that reach really helped both of us, it was, it was really cool. But um, for our listeners and, and our viewers that don't know you, and they should, um, you had over 10 years of counter-narcotics work in Mexico, uh, executive protection details um, from the special operations side, uh, but became an expert in, in cartel organized crime trends, some of the stuff that are near and dear to both of us as, as they affect both sides of the doing, insulting, personal protection, evasion and escape, and all kinds of cool classes. Um, I'm sure I, got, I didn't get everything in there, but if, if you get for the sake of our listeners and anything I've left out, please do. Uh, I've been uh, basically did uh, a, a lot of work uh, in in Mexico uh, dealing with uh, counter narcotics. 
Uh, I, I was not a special operations guy, but I did work with a lot of the Mexican special operation forces. Uh, basically, I had arresting powers and they didn't back then. So that was like my my whole uh, my whole presence uh, uh, working with some of those guys. Uh, the amount of time I spent down there working both in the field and also as an instructor, and in the end, uh, I was uh, I was uh, trying to figure out a way of having better trained, better better equipped, and uh, you know just more knowledgeable agents around me. Uh, right. Uh, one thing you learn one thing you learn quickly down there is that nobody does it for you. All the things you wish right. somebody would do for you, they're not going to do it for you. Uh, before I left, I was a regional sub-commander. Uh, basically, I had about 90 people underneath my command, and um, I just, you know, w- once I got that responsibility, uh, I figured to try and leave a better group of people than than what I found. And, uh, you know, that's what I did. You know, um, before I left, I had a lot of, uh, a lot of psychology majors, <laughs> uh, a few, a few <laughs> lawyers, sadly. <laughs> And uh, just better prepared people. Um, and I kind of brought that into the civilian side of things when, uh, when people started asking me questions about the type of training that would give them. You know, they were kind of curious about it. I did a executive protection work for a governor uh, in Baja. I was, head of, I was head of his security. And I, I trained up uh, their family members. Uh, just awareness, uh, you know, what to carry, um, um, how things work, you know, on the... Uh, on the surveillance and counter surveillance side and, and all that type of stuff. And uh, they kind of told their friends, they told yeah. their family and it went on from there. Eventually I kind of, I was kind of the guy that people went to uh, for that type of training until I, you know, and then eventually I just went into the U S and started doing the same thing over there. And I didn't realize how much value the, the specific detailed experience I had down South was going to have in the U.S. How the some of the stuff that I thought was common knowledge was really kind of new or out of the out of the ordinary for somebody to talk about it up there. So uh, that's kind very of how much it, so. Yeah, you you were you were living it, man. And and when you when you made the jump out of operations to consulting and training like you're doing now, did anything catalyze that down south, or was it just the time to go? Because you know, you and I when we first met, we had talked a little bit about that, and it's a fascinating story. Uh, it's it's a uh, Mexico goes through cycles every six years. There's a new president that comes in, changes everything. Um, usually, every single uh, security uh, or, or or policy that uh, deals with uh, managing the police forces down south usually changes every six years. So I was I was I was a uh, I was part of a, an effort to modernize and certify police forces in Mexico. Like I actually had American certification through a uh, through a association called Calia, which is unheard of for police forces in Mexico to have such a certification. But we were one of the first ones to get it, and I think this day one of the only ones to get it. Um, nice. All that went away. You know, uh, we used to do polygraph uh, testing every year or every half of a year. Uh, backgrounds were checked, house vi- surprise house visits, all that good stuff. You know to keep us on the level. Um, they want to have trustworthy people working. And so as long as everybody went through it, everybody was fine with it. And um, people sued the government because of it. And when the government changed, uh, all those people that were let go or fired because of cartel ties, corruption, that right. type of stuff, all of them came back. 
right? So all of a sudden I was in a room uh, with, le with new leadership that were all on the take and they wanted me to work for one side. And, uh, you know, I smiled. I said I was going to go to the office to figure things out. And I resigned that same day and you know, left for the U.S., basically. Wow, man. Kudos, brother. And it's so good to have you over here. And the interesting thing was when, when we first met, we started talking about this embedded cartel presence all throughout America that very few people seem to take seriously. And they're just starting to get wind of it, largely because of your reach and the stuff I'm doing. And thankfully to our mutual friend, Joe Rogan, of putting it out there and having an interest in it. And Wayne and I as game wardens, you know, we're always first and foremost about public safety, whether it's south of the border, north of the border, from a humanity standpoint, forget the boundaries of the border. Um, but then our, our other passion, as you know, is that thin green line of conservation and wildlife and waterways and wild lands. And when I started to dive in on the special operations front as a game warden to fight these cartels coming up from south of the border embedded all over the U.S. and doing some heinous environmental damage that people just didn't make that connection. Um, it was a real eye-opener to people, and it still is. Um, you mentioned, though, when we met, you were seeing that same type of stuff back in your home country, where carbofuran, banned poisons, being untainted weed, waterways destroyed, and it was just like common practice down there. And those environmental effects, besides the public safety threat, are very, you know, they're decimating. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, and then we're certainly going to want to dive into what you and I have been putting up on our posts and what Wayne and I have been discussing on other podcasts the effects of COVID with the cartels, what they're able to do now and how crazy that is. And we, we can share. So, um, yeah. So, what do you, so, so one of the, one of the interesting things is, uh, I started learning about your work and, and kind of diving, taking a deep dive on your end. And uh, I remember seeing some pictures of some, uh, some grows in the U S right. And yeah. I, showed, I showed some of those pictures to a friend, some friends of mine. And they're like, Wow, where's that? Is that in uh, Sierra Madre? Is that uh, is that Michoacan? Is that Michoacan? Like, where, where is this? And like, oh, that's this, this is California. Like, really? Yeah, some of this stuff is in California, and you know, details about how they were using, basically, how they run their irrigation, uh, the chemicals that they use uh, to uh, you know keep their things green and not uh, not covered in their in pest the pesticides they use basically, uh, how they set up some of their, uh, you know, overnight campsites, you know, what to eat there, you know, some of the cannery they leave behind, some of those dietary things are kind of indicative of where they're from, all that type of stuff. Like I kind of started seeing and, and kind of looking at some of the stuff that was being left behind. And then you, and then, you know, on my end, I usually look at what happens around the area. Uh, right. As far as, you know, violence uh, as far as uh, the presence of an organized criminal element in the area, any larger major busts around the area as far as they moving things around. And then you quickly realize that, uh, you know, cartels usually have a way of operating as a cell and as a, as a, uh, as a, uh, a group of cells working. Right. So it's yeah. just like a virus, basically a virus will affect a, affect the, the host in a very specific way. You know, it starts off with the airways and then it goes into the lungs. That's the same thing. They work in an area and they start off uh, basically building up a, a, uh, a security element, building up a safe house type setting or place where they can move things and live, uh, build up a local, a, a local, uh, local connections with people that have ties back to the 
home country of Sinaloa, for example. Um, so you see some Sinaloa specific communities out there that have all the cultural, religious traits and stuff like that around them uh, embedded in places where some of these groves are starting to uh, pop up or some of these groves have been going for a while. Um, so you just quickly realize that they basically exported a methodology of making a living to the U.S. And, uh, and it's been going on for a long time. And it's, you know, it's weed, it's, a, it's, it's meth production, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of things. And now it's also the violence, you know. And I think what, what a lot of people don't understand, it's, it's, it's a, uh, in a lot of ways, it's an independent cell. It's not like people jump the border without any papers go over right. there, those plants and grows and run back with the money, go back to Mexico. That's not how it works. You know, they're kind of embedded in the, the country now. The money stays in the U.S., which means that there's a thriving cartel nucleus or cell just basically living on the U.S. side now. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, and that's, that is the, that's the most heinous reality for Americans to face, you know, the, the, the more we, we talk about this. And that's exactly what we were seeing on the West Coast and in other parts of the country, all the way out to the East Coast where Wayne's at, is no one's going back south unless they're deported as a deportable felon. And then if they're a tier one grower or they're a human trafficker, or they're somewhere in that cell's organizational hierarchy of any value, it's a four to $7,000 price tag to get them across without a hiccup. Yeah. Um, we, we were, you and I haven't shared this, uh, Wayne and I have, but we had arrested one DTO suspect, a grow boss, um, in multiple grows in multiple counties in multiple places of California over 20 times. And he was actually apprehended by some of our canines several of those times and getting deported and getting back within a day or two, if that, just because he was so valuable. So uh, you know, that, that, set, that says what's going on. That's kind of a statement to the level of how effective their organization is and how widespread it is. And that's only one we're catching out of all the, all the ones we're not, you know. Um, it, it's fascinating stuff, but it's definitely something we're concerned on on this side of the border because uh, that's an environmental hit. Every one of those grows, as you well know now, brother, is just decimating because just a couple tablespoons of carbofuran in one creek, we're losing that waterway for miles you know, drinking water as well. And, and that's something where we're, we're trying to and, fight and people are starting to take notice, you know. And uh, just coming from my own experience and seeing how some of these guys operate, uh, there's no there's no measurements being done, you know. Right. Uh, <laughs> there's no measurements being done. There's no environmental study around it. They are basically, you know, slash and burn type, uh, type me- me- mentality, right? So, uh, and also uh, you see... You see, you see the effects it's having on on um, on consumers. You know, if you know, there's there's a lot of people out there that are on the consumer side that think you know they're just growing weed in the hills. And what's wrong with that? There's a lot of things wrong with it. Um, it's it uh, they actually sometimes produce a very dangerous amount of chemicals and weeds meant for consumers that uh, then gets mixed up with some of the legal stuff that is being grown out there or is being sold out there. So it's detrimental to everybody involved in, in, the, in that uh, culture as well. You know, it's not, it's, it's not a single side issue. It's not, uh, it realistically shouldn't be a politicized thing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's the, the, the mentality they have is basically slash and burn, right? So they don't care if they're going to dump in uh, too much chemicals. They don't, they don't have a measuring stick 
All they care about is producing an amount of weight, selling it, and then going back and making more. That's about it. That's all they care about. And if you get in the way of, of them and of them and their their ability to produce, uh, eventually, you know, violence. Uh, you know, there's right. there's definitely money to be made. People are surprised by the fact that people are still illegally growing weed in these environments. It makes perfect sense. You know, it's a it's a market, and it's a market that grew exponentially when it was legalized in some places. And now, if you still grow it illegally, there's still a large profit margin to be made because you're not paying for a lot of things that normal regular growers are paying, um, and also you're not uh, you know paying paying for the use of land. Uh, for you know, chemicals to be uh, put on the plant in a very specific way by a specialist. You're not worried about anything environmental. You're just producing a load of shitty, horrible weed up there in the hills, uh, in, in in detriment to the uh, you know the wildlife and the land. You know, and there's there's still still there's still money to be made. People are surprised by the fact that cartels are still actually smuggling weed into the U.S. and now growing it in the U.S. Uh, why it's legal? Why are they doing that? There's still a large profit margin to be made by selling that. Yeah, big time, and we're we're seeing this in all of our all of our messengers from followers, and in any of the education you're doing, I'm doing, Wayne's doing, is the idea. And I'll take my old home state of California as an example. We were about four years in deep with our marijuana enforcement team, our specialized unit, when Prop 64 was passed, which was the recreational, you know, marijuana regulation law in California. All the medical laws tightened up, and. Every, they, everyone said, hey, you guys are going to be out of a job, man. You built up this team. You got training standards. You elevated kind of like what you did down with your team, brother. And you guys are going to be out of a job. And we said, are you crazy? Um, do you know how lucrative this stuff is on the East Coast and Middle America in the Midwest um, in states that don't have any regulation? And then our black market just doubled within a year of Prop 64 being passed simply because what you just said, bro, it, this is really potent, high THC content, cartel weed that had no overhead other than just getting it grown, no taxes, no you know, environmental purity standards, no permits, none of it. Yet it's half or less than the price of a pound of you know, dispensary quality weed coming out of California or Washington or Colorado. So we've seen a backlash. And um, when COVID started, especially and talking to my teammates down there, and I want to pick your brain about what you're hearing on, on both sides of the border where you're at, um, it's just, it's open season right now. These guys know there's not a lot of law enforcement presence because of the pandemic protocols, because all of us as first responders are tied up on more immediate life and death situations in the urban areas. So the rural areas and those mountain countries for growth just aren't getting the, the patrol and cartel groups target of opportunity. They're just, they're just ripping and tearing on, you know, both from Mexico and then within, and it's, uh, it's overwhelming our guys and we're not even in the season yet. Yeah. Um, Another interesting thing to kind of add to all that, the synthetic cannabinoids coming out of China, you know, yes, yes, that are kind of being added to some of the weird shitty stuff that is coming out of the mountains. Uh, that is, and it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not, not a clean substance. It's the right. version. It's, it's the fentanyl version uh, being used for heroin. But now, uh, for cannabinoids, uh, the synthetic cannabinoid uh, oils and stuff like that being added, it's dangerous stuff, you know. Um, again, people view this subject matter and immediately go to one side of the political spectrum, and I get it. Uh, right. But this stuff, this, this, uh, the, the amount of damage they're doing, you know, is, 
and it's it and and basically how it's it, how it's uh, feeding a growing presence in the U.S. Uh, that is now you know struggling with a few with a lot of issues. Uh, right, this is another <laughs> big one added there. Not a not a good deal for anybody on any side of the political political, political spectrum. Um, the 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 effects of the COVID nineteen pandemic and uh, how cartels are kind of dealing with it. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it it's definitely something that's hitting them hard uh, on a few fronts. Um, number one, and and it's interesting how there's videos out there of some of the Sinaloa law cartel actually enforcing curfews. Uh, right, it's they're madness. I saw you. <laughs> they're running around, you know, uh, running around with a big board with wow. COVID nineteen on it. So if you're if you're caught outside uh, uh, during curfew, they'll hit you with that stick, you know. Um, basically, they realize that the, the first off, if people are are kind of uh, worried about is the virus real? It, it's 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 very real, you know. Is it as bad as they make it out to be? I'm not a virologist. I don't know. I just see. I've actually I went to I went to Baja, and I actually got a, I got a lot of time traveling during the whole initial stages of the thing. And I, I saw people sick with it. I've lost about five people that I knew from the virus. So it's a very, yeah. very real, um, and hospitals in, in Baja are overloaded right now. It's a very real thing. Um, cartels, how they're, how, so what, how is it affecting them? Uh, number one, it's affecting their, uh, their ability to procure uh, precursors uh, for meth, and the special ingredient they're adding into their heroin loads, which was one of their bigger money makers uh, in recent years, fentanyl, mm-hmm. um, and all that stuff, and some of the chemicals they use for some of their production, all of it comes from China. China's going through a second shutdown in some places where they traditionally uh, source some of these materials. Right, so that's affecting their 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 ability to produce product that then gets sent sent to the U.S. Um, which has made them desperate in a lot of ways. Um, uh, they've been raiding and taxing any single chemical that they need to produce uh, things like meth, and um, they've been they've been scouring the land for 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 uh, fentanyl. Uh, there was a recent bust at the border where they were actually trying to smuggle fentanyl from the U.S. into Mexico. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Because you guys reopened uh, reopened sooner than Mexico did, as far as your uh, maritime um, trade with China, and as far as products, so the only way they could get fentanyl was through U.S. ports of entry. So somehow they got a big load of it, and they were put, trying to put it into Mexico so, so they can infuse their heroin and send it back up to the U.S. Which that's how desperate they are right now. You know? Wow. Um, Another weird kind of element that people kind of are not seeing is uh, cartels are diversified. It's very diverse. Uh, most cartels are very diversified. A lot of their money actually comes from illicit or pirated, uh, pirated uh, merchandise, Chinese bags, uh, Chinese products being sold in some small uh, open air markets all over Mexico. Uh, cartels actually tax these places for protection. Um, so they're not making money. So the cartels are not making money. Yeah. The trickle down effect. So, what is this producing? Uh, it's producing desperation. Obviously, there's a lot of mouths to feed in some of these organizations, and uh, <laughs> there's no money coming in. So, there's two ways that some of these groups are kind of uh, dealing with it. 
One, they're telling their guys to go home and wait. Two, they're taking advantage of this and actually investing in things like um, buying uh, food for communities that are hard hit with the virus or with the uh, shutdown and feeding some of the communities around them to basically win hearts and minds, right. solidify their position. And some of these, vi- some high production videos have come out from cartels, uh, you know, distributing uh, food to some, some of the communities that they, that they, uh, they work in. Uh, and the federal government is nowhere to be seen, you know, openly middle of the day running around around with, you know, AKs and delivering food to families that (laughs) killed by the same cartels, you know, which is wow. Kind of bizarre. Mm. Uh, but, 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 uh, it's, it's produced. I, I, I think this is what's going to happen or is it's what's happening. It's crippling one cartel that is very dependent on, a very specific type of trafficking, uh, which is a Sinaloa law cartel, which is already fragmented in a lot of ways. It's already experiencing a lot of internal strife and it has a leadership base that is kind of uh, spread out between a few people. Uh, on the other hand, their biggest rival, the new generation cartel is a single cohesive criminal enterprise with a single head that is growing exponentially. Uh, ultra-violent, ultra-organized. Uh, it has, you know, training camps out there. You know, I know a lot of people were talking about ISIS training camps in, in Mexico and stuff like that. This is actually the real deal, and you know, rarely see it covered in, uh, in, in, in U.S. media. They actually have legit training camps for these people out there. Hmm. Um, and, you know, re- recently, uh, counter-narcotics operations in the, in the U.S. side uh, caught to uh, caught the daughter of the head of these, you know, the new generation cartel, uh, right. in Emilio, um, which led to uh, uh, an operation across the country. That uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that it, uh, I'm not gonna say that it's that it was futile uh, futile as far as what they did, but I saw a lot of the people that they picked up and a lot of the uh, individuals that were named. Uh, on my side, talking to my sources, uh, it was basically low-level distribution and movement of the product, yeah. what you saw being kind of disrupted. Um, but it was over 90, 80, 90 people or something like that. Um, that shows you if they are low-level distribution, that means that there are at least for 90 people, it's going to be for 90 people that they saw for each 10, you're going to see a you're going to, for each 10 or 20, you're going to see a single type of leadership nucleus out there. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a saying in Mexico, there's a, hay muchos penachos para, debe de muchos penachos para tampoco indios. There has to be a lot of, uh, there has to be a lot of chiefs for so many Indians, basically. Right, right. So it means that it may, what, what I take from it is it uncovers a growing, uh, a growing organization in the U.S. with the newest, most brutal cartel in Mexico. So now we have Sinaloa cartel and the new generation cartel. So you have two large cartels um, growing in the U.S., unchecked in a lot of ways, um, dealing with anything and everything that they can to make money, basically. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting... It's an interesting time to see some of the desperate movements some of these guys are making because of the pandemic, and uh, it basically exposes a lot of the stuff they're doing. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal 
develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Then people need to kind of look really deeply into uh, all the stuff that's happening now. But I think uh, with less people moving around, uh, with less, uh, with less uh, you know, attention being put on anything that isn't COVID-related, um, there's a lot of moves being made out there right now. Yeah, and that, Ed, that makes perfect sense. I mean, if, if you're looking at new generation, you're looking at Sinaloa, they now want, or they're going to they're gonna fight for territory and presence and, and dominance, you know, in America, um, taking it north. Um, now's the time to make a move, right? It just makes sense that all of our attention is focused elsewhere because they were doing pretty well before COVID too, <laughs> you know, and now uh, it's, it's just a thriving entity of taking that advantage. And I remember we were, we were filming the first episode of the, the Thin Green Line pilot for Recoil TV in the middle of February, right before COVID dropped. And we were on an amazing 55,000 acre ranch in Southwest Texas, just across the border from Candelaria when you're, when you're coming across for that little stretch of Rio Grande. So really widespread part of open border. And that's a big part of the story outside of conservation hunting for Aldad sheep. But while we were on that ranch, man, we were in one of the most beautiful spots of Texas I've ever seen from an environmental resource standpoint. And that's the game warden and me and Wayne coming out. But then at the same time, one hunting group across the ranch one day is getting into 10 traffickers with 100-pound bags of tainted weed coming up right, to go through the distribution pipeline embedded and, and headed north and headed east from southwest Texas. And then we trip, uh, we're on the other side of the ranch, guys with rifles and big backpacks, and we trip a border patrol sensor at Navy, uh, um, thinking we're traffickers. But that meeting was really revealing to exactly what you're saying. The reason I'm bringing it up is, is when I talked to that pilot and we sidebarred and knew who each other were, he said, John, you no one has any idea the depth of trafficking we have out of this one little sector, one little part of Texas, one little part of New Mexico, what's really happening at Juarez and everything that you're speaking to, Ed, it was absolutely spot on. Just the hundreds and thousands of pounds of tainted weed and the methamphetamine and the people they were getting across and, and getting about one out of 10 groups. Um, we weren't even seeing a fraction of the number of operatives that were getting into America from that particular example, but it, it's overwhelming. And then the COVID issue, as you bring up, all these unprotected traffickers, we have no idea what exposure level they've got. So our guys are, you know, being impacted with that from the standpoint of border protection, BLM, a lot of the people you and I have both worked with. And uh, it, it's just something that alarms me. And like our mutual friend, Joe Rogan said the other day in a message, we were dialoguing. He said, shit, man, I think the cartels are the next big super enemy of the u.s and they're going to be the superpower of the world that we're going to have to deal with uh you know like the cold war and i don't think that's too far off do you well uh one thing one, one weird angle that i think and you know let's uh let me put on my tinfoil you know hat <laughs> and uh helps with covid yeah yeah <laughs> Somebody, somebody. Well, I get, I get, I get a lot of questions usually, and, and this one, you know, with the COVID ep epidemic and stuff like that, this, this, these whole, all of this tension right now, 
uh, between the U.S. and China, right? Right, right. And and people speaking on the fact that you know uh, there's a war with China looming, you know, in in our future. Like, what do you think about that, Ed? That's like I think you've been at war with China for years, and you just don't uh, realize. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, war, 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 and and wars are being fought all throughout the world in different ways and shapes. Uh, you, there's, 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 there's a lot of literature out there. You know, I try and um, read what I can on the subject. You know, I'm China, and uh, uh, is not my forte, but my my true forte is basically things that they do in Mexico. Uh, Chinese, there's, there's, there's no separation between Chinese criminal actions, international Chinese criminal actions, and Chinese state that I can see. Uh, right. Things from triads, things from illegally produced uh, uh, c- cannabinoids, fentanyl, all that stuff coming out of China and Chinese laboratories is done in some way, shape, or form with full knowledge and support from the Chinese state. So, you would think that uh, all of these chemicals coming out of China, which is, you know, you don't want to talk about Big Brother, um, they know everything about everybody, you know, There's, they work on a social point system, all this type of weird cameras everywhere. Uh, there's no way in hell that they don't know about all these chemicals going towards the neighbor of their largest, largest global rival. Right. 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 So if they have full knowledge of this happening and they're letting it happen, you know, they're working on they're working on a weird, uh, you know, uh, long term uh, conflict with the U.S., I think, you know, Um, talking about uh, guerrilla warfare, like a new neo guerrilla warfare or uh, pumping chemicals and pumping, uh, you know, conflict pumping uh money pumping all these things into a country that neighbors your rival to create uh instability to put uh chemicals to create a base so most of the fentanyl comes from china and it's not very new but it was a pretty recent thing this whole epidemic you had with fentanyl um and all of it comes from china I know everybody wants to go the cartels. It's the cartels. It's Mexico. It's the it's the cartel. It, it is the cartels, but it's also China. It's also China, it's right. also Chinese state actors working uh, to put drugs uh, to put the precursors in Mexico knowingly or letting it happen. Basically, that's that's another element to this that is pretty interesting. Um, so I think what you're seeing on the border and what you're seeing in Mexico. Um, is part of something global, definitely part of something global. If you kind of start piecing it together, uh, you're seeing more Norinco branded rifles out there. Uh, right. You're seeing illegal mining operations happening uh, along the uh, along the uh, Pacific side of the ocean. So you're seeing a lot of weird things. A lot of Chinese uh, state actors kind of operating through different people in Mexico, creating this this uh this perfect storm and now we have 75 percent of the mineable lithium ore on the planet in the middle of sonora right next to you right next to right uh which was 
already sold off as far as mining rights to a Canadian company that was bought it that was bought by a Chinese company. And this this is about an hour away from where the uh, Mormon massacre happened. So you 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 kind of add all these things together and you start scratching your head and just I mean I I worry about it. Um, I worry about it both as a somebody that's from Mexico and somebody that is making and working towards the American dream on the U.S. side with family on the U.S. side now. Uh, it's it, and it's interesting how it doesn't really get talked about. Uh, doesn't really get exposed as far as some of these connections. What's happening out there? Uh, kind of on on a uh, on a global uh, global destabilization scale in Mexico with obvious and clear ties to China. I think that lithium ties it right together. And, uh, you know, when they're making the, the, the car batteries, everything's electric and making that whole switch. I mean, to have that deposit there is certainly, uh, you know, an indicator that that's going to be the next, uh, yeah, illegal uh, <laughs> interaction, I think. So, um, but... Oh, but that's very interesting that the lithium came up. I, I didn't know that. And, you know, I know that our, all our batteries right now, the ones that we I use are um, from. I think we're back. That. Guys. So, yeah. John, uh, you're kind of back. So give me a second. Here we go. You're back. <laughs> no worries. Okay. Am I back? Yeah. And we, me and Ed were just talking about those lithium deposits because uh, we're, we're that, you know, lithium is such a huge, huge thing okay. for batteries right now. And China has got the biggest market in that. Although I'm sure there's a company in Mexico that makes lithium batteries too. And, you know, where we're moving towards electric cars and that, that seems to be the, the, the big pot of gold right now. And to have that sitting in cartel country, I think oh, we're going to see some pretty interesting stuff come out of that as um, I'm sure you think so too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's the next uh, it's the next oil boom, um, mm, and yep. it's right it's right uh, it's right across the border. Uh, and it's an interesting point you 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 uh, talk about uh, production of batteries in, in Mexico. Um, you, you you know I I'm in a weird I'm in a weird place uh, as far as you know my my identity. You know, uh, I'm from, I'm from Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, moved, I moved. I moved to the U.S. You know, I migrated legally to the U.S. Uh, I'm. You know, I get called a lot of horrible names uh, from people when I talk about some of these issues. Uh, but when I do, I talk about them. You know, firsthand, basically. You know, I, I don't talk about immigration as an outsider from immigration. I'm, I'm an immigrant. I went through the whole process. It's a very difficult process. It's a very complicated one and uh and you know when i see talk about the wall i see talk about you know uh, close the border i see all these things and it's pretty interesting usually people that say close the borders probably never lived in a border town um, mm-hmm. right right you, right you go to san diego right now and see how it's hitting some of the uh some of the commerce and, and some of the businesses in, in, on the on san diego side and then cross the border and go to Tijuana and see how it's affecting some of the business on that side. There's a symbiotic relationship going on there. No doubt. Uh, Mexico, Mexico, the second largest consumer of American products uh, next to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so our economies are tied. Um, and the wall, you know, we get, we get a lot of talk about the wall. Uh, it does work in stemming illegal immigration. 
which in and of itself, and this speaking from somebody that put a lot of people smugglers away and found a lot of the things that they actually do to people um, when they try and try and move them up into uh, towards the border. There's a lot of rapes that happen there. It's a lot of murders. A lot of people get robbed. A lot of people get used. Uh, Slavery is alive and well in the United States and it's linked directly to smuggling people across the border Mm -hmm. uh, Mm. from sexual slavery to other types of slavery. Uh, So there's a lot of reasons why that border wall will work to fight against some of that type of stuff. Also just people risking their lives crossing a vast amount, a stretch of desert. Who knows how many bodies are out there of people just succumbing to the, uh, the elements. Uh, that's one side of the issue. The other side of the issue is uh, security. Um, is, is, is it uh, stemming the flow of drugs into the U S um, well, traditionally, traditionally where the border wall is mostly built up, is where a lot of the drugs actually go through. You know, ports of the uh, uh, Tijuana border area, a lot of drugs get through there, usually through tunnels or other means. You know, uh, so there's definitely a, 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 an argument to be said that border walls work for some things, but not so well for others. Mm-hmm. I think uh, working, having trained and worked with uh, customs and border protection agents, um, seeing some of their needs from both sides of the fence. Uh, they need more resources as far as manpower uh, and technology, I think is, I think is where they're kind of lacking, you know, uh, they're yeah. the perfect, they're the perfect villain for, for the type of people that hate me, you know, uh, oh, border patrol agents said, you're like, how, how can you work with them? You're an immigrant yourself. You're from Mexico. How can you, you know, speak to, to, to I've seen, and I've seen border patrol agents out of their pocket, go and buy toothbrushes for kids, you know? Yep. Oh, they put them in cages and shit like that. They, they, so first off, and oh, this family separation, that's been going on way for a long time, right? Um, coming into the country illegally, I didn't come into the country illegally. Uh, you get arrested for anything, you get, you get separated from your kid. That, that's just what happens, you know? Um, the kid is actually safer, healthier than he would be out there in the hills on the Mexican side waiting to get across, right? Okay. But it's one of those things. They should people should kind of people should kind of uh, before they kind of give an opinion on that type of stuff. I wish I could take them on a safari tour to some of the uh, immigrant camps uh, down south and you know ask them where do you where would you want, where would you want a kid to overnight? You know, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty horrible it's a pretty horrible situation all around in that area and in, in the border area. Uh, you'd be surprised as far as what type of shenanigans happen on both sides of the border if you've never been there. Uh, it's not uncommon to see full armed incursions of armed men from cartels into the U.S. You know, um, Guys with AKs walking into the U.S., delivering something and walking back, and on the U.S. side having the same thing happen on the U.S. side, you know, um, because they work on both sides, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, also, a lot of people are expecting these guys with, you know, cowboy hats, pointy boots, uh, Mexican dudes, uh, actually, they're working in conjunction with uh, biker gangs now on the U.S. side. Um, yeah, wow. So you're, you're going to see a lot of uh, Caucasian people sometimes uh, working with them in conjunction on the U.S. side. You'll see, uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, blonde ladies uh, picking up uh, merchandise, uh, uh, picking up loads on the U.S. side. Um, I say this because we actually. On the Mexican side, we would see from afar some of the activities that would go on around the border, 
and we would just get freaked out by you know soccer mom with a with a uh, right. <laughs> soccer mom with a uh, with like a little backpack that was hiking with two kids you know like through the hills uh, would just lean down move a rock and just pick up a brick and put it in her backpack and walk off you know and you would see this and you're like mm, no yeah. what connection could she have to the cartels because of because of her ethnicity and then you kind of like figure things out later on you see they have links to uh, biker gangs in the US uh, or other types of groups of, the, of that nature which is now you start seeing that kind of it's it's always been the case uh, but you see that connection in some uh, in some of these places so no, it's it's a rowdy it's a rowdy it's a rowdy place at the border. Yeah, and I, something I you know after watching all your Rogan shows, reading all your articles, and everything like that, I I just kept forming questions. And when you talked about the bravest man in Mexico, I could tell you have a little reverence there to the lieutenant colonel. I I kind of want to know where you came from, and you know to take that step to come to the U.S. when uh, they wanted to, you to join the other side. I mean, it, it says character to me, and I just kind of want to go back to your beginnings and how you developed that character and, and, and that type of thing that you didn't, you didn't go over to the other side. You didn't do that. There, there has to be something there. And I think that's something you can share with everybody that, you know, especially we get a lot of young kids uh, watching this that want to be game wardens or want to be in law enforcement. And uh, yeah, just uh, character just comes out when I, when I'm listening to this, watching you talk and the manifesto thing, you know, that's, that's, that's your belief. That's what you want to do. This is, this is, the, I want to change something. And that just says so much about your character. Can you bring us back to, to how you developed and uh, the choices you made? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm no saint at all. Uh, working in Mexico as a cop, shady shit happens. It's <laughs> unbelievable, you know? Uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's part and parcel of the culture down there. Uh, but there's a difference between working in that environment and and picking a side, which is exactly what a lot of people that uh, go into that line of work do. What I mean by picking a side is usually you'll see outside, what, even when I was in the going through training, uh, every now and then you would hear somebody being called out and they would step out of formation and then you would never see them again. Later on, you would hear rumors of why they were taken out and usually it's because they had an FBI background check. All of us went through the FBI background checks. Um, and something came up where they were part of a smuggling operation of some mm. some sort or connected cartel connected in some way. So they got kicked out. So that it's always been the case where they try to infiltrate our group and groups like us uh, with some of their guys. Um, and then later on, you would see people approach, you'd see guys approach us uh, with money, basically. You know, um, you know, this is this is for you. Leave me alone and. Um, there's more of this, you know, all I need you to do is just leave me alone. Um, main thing that we learned early on, once you get into somebody's pocket, there's no way to get out of it. You know, yeah. Uh, when I graduated from the Academy, my dad was there. Uh, my dad is the biggest pacifist on the planet. He doesn't, you know, never raised a fist in anger, doesn't understand what went through my head when I decided to do this type of work. You know, completely to the opposite side of the spectrum of everything I kind of became. Uh, but he gave me some of the best advice. You know, don't let anybody own you, Ed, basically, was this yeah. thing. Um, 
once I once I uh, once I got through training and um, went out there, I experienced right off the bat the realities of the work that it was uh, in. Uh, two of my friends were picked up uh, outside of a hotel and executed horribly uh, in the span of a few hours. Mm-hmm. Um, the shootouts with people that were armed in a very superior fashion with very superior numbers uh, were a constant. And you would look to your sides and you would see people that were there and you would see people that would run away or not be there. Um, and then you would look to, to towards your leadership and the people that were there to kind of guide you along this suicidal endeavor. Um, one of the faces and voices that I heard for early on from my training and then later on outside was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lizaola. I actually got to experience his transition from being Task with heading up training, and then going into being the director of the organization that I was uh, that I was a Mm. part. Um, He was a graduate of the War College in Mexico. Uh, A lot of you know rumors and and um, you know nobody knew what to make of him. He was a (laughs) you know it was one of those supernatural humans that you you find in life. you know, he, 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 as a director, he, was, he would go out into formation with a bunch of young dudes. I was 21 when I went through training, you know, skinny, sunburnt, no hair. And he would, you know, taunt us by doing, you know, just, you know, push-ups in front of us. See, see, how, see, see, how, see how, how much he, would, he, would, he could gas us. But he very much led by example. Um, he, was a, he, was a, he was a badass. He was, and he was also very, you know, very direct, honest, harsh uh, individual. Uh, my first executive protection job and my first bodyguarding job was with him. <laughs> basically, basically, he looked around the room. He looked around the room and said, eh, because, uh, since I have a pretty weird, unique name for Mexico, <laughs> people remember it. So, <laughs> Ed, yeah. uh, you know how to drive? I said, like, yeah. Awesome. Get in the car. So, I my first executive protection uh, job was driving him around uh, Tijuana, supervising operations, basically. Wow. Um, and uh, we would go to places. Uh, we'd go. So the way things worked back then, you would get uh, anonymous reports or you would get any sort of suspicious activity reported to uh, Central. And nobody on the municipal police side would respond because it was, they were in on it or they just didn't want to get yeah. killed. And the only guys that would go there were, were, were was the operations group, uh, which was what I was a part of. So I would hear these uh, reports coming in, and Lieutenant Colonel Lizola says, would say, "Well, let's go over there." Okay, so go over there. And, uh, Run to the bullets, uh, man! Run to the bullets. Let's yeah, go. yeah, yeah. Leadership, uh, yeah, lead from the front, basically. Uh, he, like he, he despised. He, he despised. Uh, uh, straps, uh, uh, carry straps on his rifle. So he would carry his rifle in his hand like a gun, you know, because that's who he was. Uh, he would go, he would go in and, you know, interact with some of the detainees, kick doors down, that type of stuff. It was crazy, 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 crazy. Uh, but he would say, you know, don't ask anybody else to do what you can't do yourself. Uh, so he was very kind of influential in the way I did things later on. Um, and, uh, you know, he, there, was a, there was one day he said, you know, raise your hand if you want to, you know, 
you know, be a hero to your community and, and, uh, you know, be, be, make a difference and, uh, you know, be recognized for your efforts Just raise your hand. And a few people raise their hands. I was on to him. So I didn't raise my hand, you know, I was like, shut my mouth in the corner. Uh, and then he said, okay, all those that you raised your hands, get the fuck out of here. I don't want any of you. Like, <laughs> I, I, I need villains. I need, I need people that, I need villains. Basically he said, I need people that are capable of fighting the type of people that we need to fight. So I need villains. I don't need anybody that want to showboat. I don't need any individuals. I need a group of villains to basically fight villains. We don't fight. We need to fight fire with fire. And that's what he made. He made a group of villains, basically. And uh, as a villain himself uh, against the cartels, the cartels were, he's one of the only individuals that I can recall in recent history in Mexico that was feared. This guy was feared by the largest criminal groups on the planet at the time. And, uh, and that is unique in and of itself uh, from this guy. Uh, he kept a pretty, uh, t- he, he ran a pretty tight chip. Everybody was. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Suspect to him, so, um, but he was very influential in, 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 uh, in my kind of way of thinking and my upbringing in that line of work. Uh, I think if he wasn't there, I don't know, I don't know where I would be, probably. A lot of us, you know, kind of call back to that time when he was uh, in charge um, and kind of remember it fondly uh, for how much we were feared because of him. Right. Wow. And, what a man, Ed, what a mentor to have, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, like Wayne said, it speaks to your character, but we all need those mentors. And I know we had them in our career, but what a legitimate guy, man, actually feared by the cartels and leading from the front, like all good leaders do. And, and, and you followed in his footsteps and it, it's beautiful to see and kudos to everything you're doing now to educate and, and really trying to make a difference out there, man. It's, it's amazing. And he's currently he, uh, running for the mayor of Tijuana or is that over and done or he's on his, he's going to be, he's on, he's on his third attempt. Third attempt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, was, uh, they tried to kill him many times. Um, like many times, uh, there's, uh, some, some people out there that have, that have trained with me and, uh, I, I, sometimes I do, uh, classes where we, uh, kind of stay over, sleep over there, during the night in some of the sites we're training. Uh, I disappear at night and go to sleep somewhere where nobody knows I'm going to, where I'm going to sleep. And that is direct, directly influenced by how he would, you know, kind of, uh, manage. Uh, first time I, <laughs> first time I stayed at a hotel, First time I stayed in a hotel with him, he said, Ed, what room are you in? Um, 204. Okay. He took his card, this suite. Now you're in room, you know, 205. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> I grabbed it and he, you know. He was, oh, he he was branded. <laughs> yeah, he was like, now you're in room 205. And, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting. You know, he said, never sleep where they think you're going to sleep, right? So, 
uh, that that was kind of interesting, and I learned from that. Um, he uh, he got a lot of attempts on his life. You know, um, the last one took the the, the use of his legs. Uh, he, he was uh, yeah. coming off being head of police in Juarez, and um, he was shot in the back by a former uh, Juarez police officer uh, <laughs> that was sent there. Um, it took the use of his legs, but man, the only thing they did was cl- this create. They they he like when that happened, everybody was like. You know, first off, you know, you worry about the guy, of course. Uh, but then he was, you know, posting pictures of him, you know, standing up with his arms, like I can, t- I, you know, I can still, I can still do things, you know. And he said, "Well, you know, I'm gonna have to fight him some some other way." So he went into politics. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I've, I've been helping out with his campaign for the past two campaigns he's had. Uh, you know, after I went on Rogue and he gave me a shout out through his social media was is the only time in my life that he has ever acknowledged my existence outside of changing hotel rooms with me. So <laughs> I, I guess you made, you made the ultimate cut then, bud. Yeah. Yeah. You know, gave me, gave me a compliment. A few friends from back in the day, like reach out to me like, what the, you know, what? Like, you know? And I was thinking drivers had a special relationship with the guys they drove. And right. <laughs> I'm thinking you guys became friends. And, uh, yeah, I guess that didn't happen. <laughs> no, no. Uh, so the, so the, a weird thing that I had that not a lot of people had, uh, language skills were part of the work that I did. So I got a lot of people think that I've been speaking English my whole life. That is not true at all. Um, I understood it. I could speak it brokenly, uh, but actually I went through language training for, for, for some of the work that I did um, mm. and uh, started eliminating some of the accent. Uh, went to the U.S., trained in the U.S. Uh, as well. Went through some training on the U.S. side. Um, so I was the guy, you know, the guy that could speak English. I was also the guy that was tech savvy, and I was also the guy that knew how to buy gear on the U.S. side. So... Mm. Every now and then I would show up with a new piece of gear. You would look over at me, you know, like, oh, that's a nice vest. Now, how much was it? Oh, this much. Okay, so you could buy another one, right? It's like, yeah. <laughs> Start shopping. Oh, you immediately realize you had to buy two of everything. You know, that's about the only, that's about the only interactions we had usually when we came to equipment. I, I tried to sell them on a two-point sling, and... He, he refused. He refused. Right? He maybe maybe he knows something I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> mm. No, I think uh, that was a great relationship forged, and I think you got a lot out of it. Uh, just uh, yeah, when, when I when I watched you talk on Rogan, when his name came up, your 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 demeanor changed. So and I guess that's maybe part of our police training and interviewing techniques. Which I just uh, that's that's what I really like to do is to dig in there and, and find those cases that are hard. So I just like you know that that man had a, a big impact on it. And then I start looking at your character, you know. And, and the other thing that comes up uh, when you left that meeting and headed for the U.S. That just says there was something in place to do that, or was that a knee-jerk reaction? I mean, my gut tells me that there, you you had a plan, you had a bug-out plan. <laughs> um, I did. You you always do. You know that's you always uh, should. Again, some some of the uh, right, John. <laughs> some of the training, yeah, some of the always, training, yeah. some of the uh, <laughs> some of the training, and some of the just the basic uh, 
culture, you know, because it was a culture. Mm. That job and the people that was in there was a culture, you know. Um, uh, we had everything set to run, basically, right? Mm. So things like keeping cash on hand, um, having a bug out bag or just a bag to run already made. All of us used to carry around, you know, change of clothes in the car. Um, we kept our passports and uh, any sort of travel documentation up to date. Like I had, uh, I had Sentry, I had Sentry, uh, Sentry Pass. Uh, I had my passport. I had my visa. Um, I married an American, um, but my my aspirations to become an American were not even close to uh, close to. Uh, <laughs> where I was you know uh, I was right. I was working I was I was needed where I was mm. uh, I, it was a career for me um, and I was there you know I was in it um, luckily uh, during that time working down there I made a lot of, a lot of con- connections with a lot of people on the US side um, uh, I was part of a very uh, a very great group of people that went to Coronado a few times and actually trained out there at the naval base with some mm-hmm. uh, very special people. Uh, this coming off the whole Zeta debacle, so it was a pretty big deal that they actually let us in there and actually let us uh, into some of the skill sets that they showed us. Um, That's huge. Some of the some of the some of the friendships that I had and forged when I was there, you know, still are still kind of here. Uh, so when the whole the whole change happened. Um, a lot of the people that I worked on the U.S. side with uh, were kind of keeping tabs on me, and they realized that the change was coming. Um, so a lot of the liaison work I used to do and stuff like that, I told them, like, uh, if you receive a call from that work number that I gave you, yeah, just realize it's not me anymore. It's these people, and I have nothing to do with them. And, you know, just on the record, uh, I don't trust these Stone. people. Yeah. yeah. So they said, well uh, – a few of them actually offered their homes, which, which again, goes back to the whole uh, Americans have a very, very specific altruistic and honor-based kind of upbringing, specifically in the military branches that I have yet to encounter out there in any other culture. Um, And a lot of them actually offered to open up their houses and their homes to me and my family uh, when I made that, uh, that jump. And, well, that's 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 what I kind of uh, in the span of a few uh, probably like twenty four hours, my whole life was in my truck, and I was across the border. <laughs> wow! Um, and starting my process, uh, starting my my immigration process within forty eight hours, basically, uh, I made the mistake of well, not the mistake. It was just in the environment <laughs> uh, when I was doing my immigration process. It was right around the time that Trump got elected, so the wait time was exponentially longer, you know, right, <laughs> for the right. process. Because <laughs> everybody made a rush for it. Um, uh, but interestingly enough, uh, I stayed in a kind of a military community um, for the time that I was uh, initially there uh, in the U.S. and very conservative community around me. And so I got to experience that side of it and also got to experience the uh, – more liberal side of California as well. So my new American experience, you know, was very politicized on TV. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and both sides were trying to convert me to their side. Now you're an immigrant from Mexico. 
don't support Trump. And the other side is like, eh, it's, you know, it's fine. You know, you're here, you're yeah. fine. You're legal. You're, it's great. Don't worry about it. So you, you got to see both sides of the, uh, of the argument. You know, eventually it just led me to the whole, you know, I, I just want to be able to, you know, go to my best friend's, uh, my best friend's gay wedding and be able to carry a gun concealed. That's about it. You know, if I can do both, you know, <laughs> fine. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a weird time to t- try and become, uh, an American, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely been an experience. Um, but, uh, I, I, I know what, what hunger is. I know what, uh, what not being able to trust anybody around you at work is. I know what being hunted is like. Uh, so when I'm in the U S and I'm, you know, training and talking to some of my, uh, law enforcement agents, uh, colleagues on the u.s side of things you know i try to be very vocal and adamant about the fact that some of the some of my realities back then could be some of your realities in the near future or now um i didn't get a pension i didn't get a uh you know a send-off party i didn't get anything uh not even a pat on the back from the job i did down there uh so my whole kind of mindset right now and part of the you know the uh, purposes of the whole Ed's Manifesto project is to make it worth it. Um, yeah. A lot of my friends got uh, killed down there. A lot of my, um, a lot of my youth was uh, injected into fighting a war that is still going on down there. And a lot of it was, you know, now that I'm standing over here, a lot of a lot of it seemed like a lost cause, and um, I just want to make a lot that experience you know worthwhile for people. If, if that's that's why I'm very passionate about sharing some of this information, some of the experiences I've had, and to give a voice to the people that I work with. Because you know the weird part of me is that I can speak English in a conversational way, and I had the experiences I had. And you'll hear a lot of voices coming out uh, from down there that did what I did. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, no, it's very. Well, it's awesome. It, it is very unique, and it's awesome, Ed, because it's not about just Mexico. It's not about the U.S. It's not about border control or the you know the immigration debate. It's really about humanity, man. And that's that's the message you're putting out there to keep people safe, and that we all admire. And you know, to go back to what you mentioned earlier on. Um, the immigration debate, you know, we've never had an anti-immigration message on any level of anything we've done on thin green line protections, as you know, when you and I met, and we don't have an anti-cannabis message even. Um, we have a health and human safety message and a preservation of our environmental resources message that goes everywhere. You know, forget the border, take it out of the equation. And man, all the experiences you had down there just personifies exactly what we see on the dark side of all those issues and how they can be politicized. And it, it, it's cool to see it being more universal and not segregated to one spot. Yeah. Um, uh, specifically the, the subject of public lands, uh, it, you know, the, the U S is, it doesn't know. Americans don't know how amazing they have it. <laughs> so true, man. Take With, it for granted too. I mean, I, uh, Mexico is a pretty wild place. I've been in some pretty amazing places in Mexico, uh, but we don't have, a conservation culture and uh, no. the, 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 the amount of slash and burn and the amount of places that I used to go to that you go to now and they're gone. Right. 
there, there's there, there, it's just disheartening. And then you go to the U.S. and I was in Yosemite, uh, <laughs> and I was looking around and I this is the simulation. This this can't be yeah. This can't be real. Like how how is this here? Like why aren't there a bunch of houses? <laughs> right in this area uh yeah and and it's uh you know i i view it as a uh as a gift and um and not not and it's not my gift uh my kid's american and seeing things through those eyes i'll never get to see what those eyes are going to see in the future uh but i want to have at least what i saw when i was standing in yosemite to be in her in, in her future, if I can, you know that that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing is we're we're just just trying to preserve some of that, you know, for everybody. Forget forget about those those border issues, and you know when you mentioned Mexico, and I shared this with you when we met, and you mentioned Baja, and I think of you know the slash and burn mentality down there that I certainly saw, but I absolutely love the country and. Um, my friends and my family and we have a Baja race team down there. And, you know, I shared with you the orphans we support and the community, you know, to, to, to try to change the tide, if you will. And old Baja is just gorgeous, man. There's some remote areas still in Baja that are just semi untouched that I've been on an ATV without any support hundreds of miles from anybody. And I just shut the engine off and look around and go, I could be in the Anzabrigo desert right now in San Diego County. You know, yeah. I could be like in the plains of Utah. It is such a gorgeous country, and it, it's, it's a bummer to see some of the rip and tear you mentioned. But there's so much down there that is beautiful, you know, the people first and foremost, and then the more remote Baja terrain that, that, um, that I miss every day, you know. Um, and, and just hope to see some of that last. And if, if there's any hope for some calming of the calamity down there, if you will, that more people can enjoy it, you know, the, the next generation coming up here as well. Yeah, there's uh, there's there's two places in Baja that I would recommend people go see. Um, one of them is uh, El Picacho, uh, where the observatory is. That's probably yes. right. There's Cal- yep. there's wild flying California condors up there. It's awesome. Yeah, they look like planes. If you've never seen one of those in the wild flying around, um, that was pretty amazing. Uh, it's a pretty amazing place. It's a weird place because you wouldn't expect high Sierra uh, uh, pine in, in that yeah. part of Baja, but it's there. You can stand on a clear day. You can stand on top of the observatory and look at the Pacific Ocean on one end and look at the Gulf of uh, Baja on the other. It's, it's a pretty amazing place. I know that place a lot because we would you know, chase down drug planes in the area. <laughs> Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, it's a, a pretty place. And if you go further south, uh, down to Baja Sur, there's a place called Cabo Pulmo, which is basically a tropical coral reef, right? I mean, you just go into the ocean and stick your head underwater, and it's an insane, like, it's like a Disney cartoon down there. Like, the amount yeah. of colored fish, whales, it's just a weird supernatural place there they're starting to build hotels near there which is disheartening but um yeah um but yeah there's definitely some amazing places out there if you if you make your way no doubt no doubt so ed i just want to thank you a a lot for coming on um you know certainly sharing all that stuff because it's it's very uh 
It's very different for me being on the East Coast, being uh, my, my board is Canada. I know on one of the Rogan shows, I think you were talking about smuggling that the coyotes were now sending them on planes and they were coming through the, walking through the Canadian border and that's my country. And I worked very close with border patrol up here. So that was my connection, but to, to bring what you talk about into my reality, you know, is, uh, is something special. And I, I really appreciate you coming to the U S sharing your story and, and taking a stand and, and trying to make a difference because uh, there's, there's not a lot of people that do that. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. And thank you. Uh, um, thank you guys for, for inviting me on. I, I get the uh, whole, Ed, aren't you worried about the cartels knowing about you and, 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 and then them come after you. If I was worried about that, I probably didn't, wouldn't have gone into law enforcement in Mexico for right. 12 years. Right. Right. Uh, is it a worry? Yes. Uh, but um, I don't know. I don't owe anybody anything. I never took anything that wasn't mine. I never yeah. worked on any side. And uh, my, my background has been, you know, I've, I've been, I've been around people. I've been work. I've worked with the people that I've worked and uh, I'm more worried about mm, the whole effort that I had down there, not being worth anything and nothing coming out of it. Right. Uh, that's what that's what keeps me up at night. I'm not uh, not scary men uh, waiting to you know hunt me down. Um, I uh, I'm not particularly. Uh, I don't speak about anything uh, that I don't know about, and I don't speak about anything that uh, that isn't verified or that isn't part of that isn't part of something that is kind of open source, right? So. You know, I get I get that question a lot. You know, aren't you worried? Uh, I think anybody that's ever done anything that's worth doing will usually create enemies out there in the world. And that, yeah. that's just inevitable. Uh, uh, the difference between most of my law enforcement agent uh, friends in the U.S. or some of my military friends from the U.S. is uh, most of the enemies that I made were, you know, lived pretty close to where I used to live. Um and then there's a lot more of them. And, um, you know, again, uh, you have no idea how good you have it in the U.S. Uh, when it comes to some of your law enforcement uh, professionals, some of your wildlife uh, professionals and keeping that uh, preserved for your, for your kids. Uh, there's a lot of things you have going for you. And um, I think, uh, I don't know, I think it should be obligatory for, for, for American youth to travel to other parts of the world to see how the other side of it lives. Yeah. So you appreciate that a bit more. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's been an amazing uh, trip and amazing experience. And I'm just glad to, you know, glad to have ended up on the U S side. That's about, that's about all I can say. No, man, it's, it's great. And I like your point. Uh, we really appreciate your point. If the X generation, all of the, the next generation of kids could, sit in Mexico for a day or go overseas for a day. What an education lesson of appreciation, you know, when we're trying to drag some of them out to enjoy the outdoors. And uh, man, we, you know, really appreciate you being on and great to see you again, brother, and healthy through COVID and look forward to talking again, but it's, it's been great. Thank you so much for being part of our Thin Green Line. Thank you. It was an honor, Ed. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. 
For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.